A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. This is Ramdas here and now, and I'm Raghu Marcus. Welcome. So, I want everyone to know that today we're is our kind of two month birthday. I say kind of because I don't know exactly, but it is around two months that we uh, two months ago that we started the Be Here Now Network, the podcast network. Which from which you're hearing this podcast, or you're, or you're downloading and streaming uh, from iTunes. And by the way, while you're up on iTunes, it'd be great to uh, leave some comments about what you think about the podcast, and and also you can leave comments on the Be Here Now Network Ramdas Here and Now page. And let me know, and uh, I'll share it with Ramdas. Whatever feedback or things you'd like to hear about, we'd like to accommodate and have a dialogue with you. So, two month birthday, and uh, want to thank you for the support. We've had some great initial support. Obviously, this is a Be Here Now Networks under the nonprofit Love Serve Remember. Ramdas's nonprofit uh, that represents Ramdas and Neem Karoli Baba and the other teachers that we have on the network, and um, we also and can continue because we have to continue to encourage you to uh, use that uh, Amazon link and bookmark it so that whatever you buy anything from Amazon and we all do every week it seems I do. Um, we can get, uh, you know, a very small percentage, but it all adds up if enough people do it to help support the network and what we're doing, uh, under the love server member Aegis. Also, uh, donations are great, obviously, but if you can make just like even a $9 recurring one, that's 108 a year. That's the magic guru number. That would go another long way uh, to give us the kind of support we need uh, for what we're doing here and helping support the teachers and uh, and the projects that we have. And we have a bunch of them, and you're going to be hearing more about them uh, by email. And that's another thing. Please, please do sign up and become part of the Be Here Now email list so that you can be informed of the things that we have going. Obviously, uh, next month's our big month to introduce the uh, Heart Mind app and the Life and Balance course. We've got some extraordinary podcasts coming up uh, uh, from different uh, 
walks of life, shall we say, and I'm going to keep it a secret until, uh, so that's why you got to get on the email list so that you can hear about this. So I'm keeping it a secret for now. Uh, what else? Um, oh, before I get into today's podcast, I do want to, uh, let everybody know a big thing that's happening on our sister, uh, website. Well, it's not on the website. What am I talking about? It's from Ramdas. It's a a new course. And this is the first public announcement of it. It's going to all of you that listen to Ramdas here and now. And it's called Ramdas is Being Here Now, an Odyssey through the essential teachings of Ramdas. It's an eight week course that we spent almost a year, maybe eight months curating uh, very specific uh, talks from both uh, audio and video uh, alongside of uh, a wonderful guide that was created by uh, Ram Dass's co-author in the last couple of books, Ramesh Das. And it is just so uh, nitty-gritty essential for anybody who... Uh, and, you know, some people say, well, I've listened to a million of these uh, Ram Dass talks. Well... Uh, I think you'll find uh, talks in here that you haven't heard because we really went into the deep catalog and also just the way that it's curated uh, to really support uh, weekly topics from identity and perspective to witness and dealing with suffering and karma yoga and love and compassion. It's just a, uh, it's a very, very full agenda that I think many people will appreciate, whether you are new to Ramdas or have been listening to Ramdas for a long time. So uh, that you'll look out for. It'll be announced both on the Be Here Now network list as well as ramdas.org. So there you go. That's it for today on the announcements. Uh, this talk from Ramdas uh, is around spiritual practices. I don't know how many times people talk to me about spiritual practices, just just in conversational meeting people at different places at the retreats and so on. And it's a toughie. And in this talk, Ram Dass jokes about it. I think he, he starts to talk off um, thinking, people think, I've got to meditate today. And he says, if you think you should meditate, you shouldn't. Don't <laughs> go out and lust some more. Uh, obviously a dramatic statement and uh, one that is very true uh, for all of us at one time or another. And certainly uh, in the beginning, you know, our minds get into it and we just think that we need to do this, that, and the other, and that, that we're going to have a result that's going to change everything. And uh, I like to think of it more as uh, a habit-forming uh, ritual that's that uh, supersedes some of the uh, the habitual tapes that we uh, run on ourselves all the time with I have to meditate or I um, I'm bored that's another one bored uh, I love and Ramdas in this thing he talks about and instead of identification with being bored make peace with being bored that's a biggie that is a biggie now um so the other thing is, what are the motivations to actually doing practices? Now, obviously, uh, I mean, for me, looking back, I, it was just uh, rampant 
unhappiness and depression about what in the hell this was all about uh, if, if I was just to adhere to the norms of the culture and the society that I was living in and my parental influence and all of that. And so I started just reaching out. There must be something else. And obviously psychedelics, you know, I've said this a billion times, uh, had a big play in it uh, to realize the interconnectivity of everything so there was something beyond the senses and the ego. Uh, but uh, I want to read something to you that's... Uh, I just had this book recommended by my good friend uh, David Silver. And... Uh, it's, it's a book uh, by the guy that introduced the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Um, Evans Wins was his name. Um, and this is, the, uh, this is just, it's called The Good Wishes of the Adi Buddha, Samanth, Samantha Bhadra. Okay, it's a little bit archaic, okay, the language and everything. It, uh, it's translated in the early part of last century. Um, but it's, it's, it's really worth taking a look at. Uh, related to why in the hell should we be doing any practice? The foundation of all is uncreated, uncompounded, independent, and beyond mental concept and verbal definition. So whatever the foundation of all, it's uncreated. And you, in other words, you can't understand it or talk about it in a rational way. Neither the term samsara, which means illusion, nor the term nirvana, which means gone beyond illusion, can be applied to it. So neither of those can be applied. To realize it is to attain Buddhahood. Not to realize it is to wander in samsara, in the illusion. So not knowing the foundation, beings from time immemorial erred. They made a big mistake not knowing the foundation. They were overwhelmed by the darkness of unconsciousness from which sprang ignorance and error. Immersed in error and obscured by ignorance, the knower, the I, became bewildered and afraid. So that's when arose the concepts I and others, us and them, together with hatred. Just, just think of this stuff when you think of the times we're living in right now. When these had grown strong, there was born an unbroken current of samsaric evolution. Then the five poisons of the obscuring passions, lust, anger, selfishness, delusion, and jealousy flourished, and there was produced an interminable chain of badass karma. That's my little addition. The root source of error among sentient beings is thus unconscious ignorance. And in virtue of the power of the good wishes of me, the Adi Buddha, not me, Raghu Marcus, may each of them realize the radiant, immaculate mind, innate in every living thing. So that's, that's a pretty damn good definition of why the hell we should practice, right? <laughs> and here's another one. This is from the talk uh, from Ramdas. Change generates fear. Fear generates contraction. Contraction generates prejudice and bigotry and ultimately violence. 
What is the antidote for that? Is the unconscious... No. Okay. What is the antidote for that? It's the, uh, it's the consciousness that does not respond to change with fear. The consciousness that does not respond to change with fear. And so how uh, that's, to me, it would be the perfect motivation for practice to develop compassion, love, unselfishness, and, um, and just, uh, you know, a high motivation to get ourselves straight so that we are not living in this polarization uh, of our lives. Because uh, obviously the polarization of what's going on today in the world, what's going on in our country, uh, is just really uh, high-level polarization, right? And, uh, you know, and this is something else Ram Dass has said over and over, until we straighten our hearts out, we can't think, you know, there's no way that we can do much uh, to help in any way. Just even the people right next to us, you know, our family, our wives, husbands, brothers, sisters, mothers, girlfriends, boyfriends, um, workplace uh, associates and all of that. Just think of all of that. Never mind the society in general. So uh, this, uh, and in, in this talk, Ramdas talks a lot about being honest, having an honest approach to the path, which is why he said when the question is, why do we do practices? And when you think you should meditate, don't keep, you know, go out there and, and run some of your karma off for a while. Um, but Basically, what he's saying is really have an honest approach to uh, to the path, meaning an honest approach to where we're at, which brings in a little bit of awareness, the witness, mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, about our motivation. And, uh, and if it is this uh, motivation of getting ahead and that we're going to meditate so we can, you know, we're going to get better, we're going to get anything, and then you realize that and you just sit. You just let go of the thoughts and you just create a habit. I mean, this is the way that I have done it. I don't think about it. I just sit, you know. I mean, I, this morning I went and sat and I just traveled uh, and just came back a couple of days ago and a little time lagged and, you know, tired. And I'm going to myself, ah, I'm too tired. And then I slip into getting lost in thoughts because uh, there is a little bit of fatigue. And and then I keep remembering. You know, one great thing I remember from Sharon Salzberg is you can always, you remember that you're lost in thought. And the beauty is the opportunity to come back to the whatever your point of one-pointedness is or absorption, however you're doing it. You can always come back. And so I would come back and not uh, have a lot of recrimination and guilt because I was a screw-up. Uh, for not being able to have any focus, you know, and, and not going on to myself, I'm I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'll just quit. So it's just a matter of uh, creating a habit where you're not thinking about uh, any excuse not to do it, or ha or even the other side of it, where you have this fantastic uh, inner experience of some sort of great absorption, and then, you know, there's pride and you know, all of that that goes into that, so... Um, 
So here it is. It's a spiritual practice, practices. It's just it's 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 a lot of Ramdas's perspective, uh, which uh, he's really good at giving about how to approach and what the the meaning is of doing practices, and um, it's it's a pretty great talk. So uh, this is Ramdas here and now. I'm Raghu Marcus. Happy to be here with you again. And uh, uh, and I'll repeat again. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and lend whatever support you can and uh, communicate with us and uh, get on the mailing list. And uh, we shall see you next time. Now, the question is why you do practices. Because a lot of people, do, like, they'll go away from this and they'll say, I ought to meditate. Forget it. Don't. Don't. Go out and lust some more. Go until you are so nauseated by your own predicament that you yearn to meditate. Get so hungry for it that you can't wait to just sit down, turn off the television, turn off the drama, and just be quiet for a few minutes. Wait until you really want it, because when you start with, I ought to, I should... You end up hating the practice, hating everybody, hating yourself. Then you cheat. Then you get guilty. It's a whole thing that you psychologically do. Forget it. You came here this weekend. That was an honest thing you did. You are here. What you hear, you hear. What you don't hear, you don't hear. Don't collect it. Forget it. It'll come around again another lifetime maybe. Ah, uh, no. Sure. Maybe five, 10,000 lifetimes. Who knows? The problem of phony holy is a drag. I'm a master at it, I'll tell you. How to be phony holy. How to get ahead of yourself. Because we in our society think our way into stuff rather than slow down enough to let it happen to us in a natural way. I ought to meditate. I ought to get educated. I ought to. I ought to. You've always, many people have been living so much by the cultures defining what you ought to do. I mean, I got to be a Harvard professor by be doing what I ought to do. And even then, I was doing what I ought to do to be a good Harvard professor. And it was only when I took mushrooms... And I connected to something in myself that was true. It wasn't somebody saying I ought to be this. It was what I am. It was a certain quality of amness or isness. And I remember the moment when I was being thrown out of Harvard. When the uh, chairman of the department and the, uh, the dean had said to me, we can't save Tim Leary. He's too crazy. But we'll save you. If you'll just shut up, we'll save you because you're running a lot of programs and you're, we need you. Um, they thought they did. They found they didn't, of course. And so there was a faculty meeting at which they were discussing the uh, irresponsible nature of introspective research, which was the way they were getting us. 
And um, all of our colleagues got up and denounced us roundly. And at the end, there was silence. And uh, Tim was shocked because he thought everybody agreed with him all the time. And um, I remember feeling the moment, the moment that the society was telling me how I ought to be in order to something. But the inner truth was so deep in me that I was connected and I that I couldn't control, I stood up and I said, I'd like to answer on behalf of our project. And the chairman looked at me and I looked at him and that was it, he couldn't save me anymore. And I remember the moment of choice, I mean of illusion of choice, by the way. Don't kid yourself, it's not that great. <laughs> I remember that moment at any rate and, and the interesting experience of realizing how rarely I had trusted that inner place in myself in my whole life. I mean, you could look at this from a cultural point of view is he took drugs and he went psychotic and then he didn't play the game of society and he got thrown out of a major social institution. And I, yes, and I, uh, there was a moment when, there was, when I got thrown out when they had a big press conference and all the uh, people were there and they were all looking at me like I was this great loser because I had taken on Harvard and lost. And what had happened to me inside was so deep and so true that to deny it would have been impossible for me to go on with my life. And I looked and I thought, I mean, I was a psycho psychologist and a psychotherapist and I thought everybody was looking at me like a loser and I was thinking I've won. I thought this is the definition of psychosis. They're all crazy. <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> See how much sugar you can get if you don't watch out. The, the, the beauty of a true spiritual journey is that it keeps unfolding from inside yourself. If you just wait a little longer, you'll see how hungry you are for integrity in your being, for a certain quietness, for a certain clarity, for a certain, and you'll, the, the tendency in our society is when there is dis-ease to grab another experience in order to reduce the dis-ease. I remember when I got into Burma to the cell, I had spent the day in my cell, the first day of my two months, meditating righteously and getting my sleeping bag right and my food containers and studying the spider at the window and all the things you do. And then I realized I had months yet to go. And I was bored. I was really bored. And boredom became my object of meditation. I looked at boredom. Instead of the identification, I'm bored, I thought, what is boredom? What does it feel like? What is it like? What does it mean to be bored? Instead of, oh, I'm bored, most of us, the minute you're bored, you move to the next thing to avoid it, and you're left with that fear or dis-ease about boredom. 
It's interesting to make peace with where nothing's happening, nothing's ever going to happen again. And here we are. And it's fascinating because when you pull back from a certain level of experiencing life, experiences and see they're just more stuff, no matter how fancy packaged they are, they're just more stuff, you get to the point of realizing that when you are in here, you are here and you're not going anywhere and nothing's ever going to happen. And that's an interesting plane because you have been living on the plane of rushes and trips and more trips and more collecting and more collecting. Is this too weird or you're hearing it? Yeah. So that the, the timing of practices is interesting. And I mean, I'm put down a lot for being an eclectic slob because most traditions say you've got to go deep into a tradition to make it pay off. And I go as deep as, I, as a dilettante can go before I'm fascinated by the next one. So I'm a Buddhist, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, blah, you know. Because I'll take anything that comes along that gets me to remember, that awakens me. And at first, it feels very multi-phrenic. But after a while, they all seem to be saying the same thing to you. It's like reading holy books. At first, you're really getting new conceptual structures and new ideas. And then after a while, you get to feel the redundancy of them. They're all saying the same thing over and over again. They're just different strokes for different folks. And it's good to have them around. They're like what's called satsang or sangha, meaning the community of beings on the journey and it's great at the stage of awakening and establishing yourself in these deeper planes of awareness about who you are and what your universe is about to hang out with other people who look at the universe that way. It's extremely useful. And often you may not find those people right around you all the time. And therefore you may turn to books or pictures or knowing, uh, just reading the, the words of such beings or reading the lives of such beings or the quotes or whatever. And they can do it through humor, they can do it through stories, they can do it through didactic teaching. And often it's sufficient, if I get up in the morning and I sit up in bed and I might take one book of these little quotes or shlokas or paragraphs and read one of them and then just sort of sit with it and let it mishmash with my day. Sort of look at my day through those eyes. And you've got in your packets a little such booklet with quotes and stories and things to reflect on. Because this weekend is like a, a smorgasbord. It's a buffet. And you get a taste of all these different methods, practices, metaphysics, ways of doing it.
And then you've got to trust your own intuitive heart as to what you listen to and where you go. Somebody will come and say, I have found the only way. And you say, I honor you for that. I've got to listen to my heart. If you don't trust your heart along the way, that's that game of learning to trust more and more strongly that the deepest inner message you can hear. Oh, so you sit down and you say, all right, I'm going to listen to my inner message. And you suddenly realize there are thousands of them. And each one is saying, I'm your real inner message. I am your real truth. Listen to me. Kill. <laughs> and you see, culture's full of it. I mean, you see... Uh, Ethnic conflicts are people listening to their inner truths and willing to die for it. You see how entrapping the mind is, how incredibly entrapping the mind is. People get into a practice, the practice works, they get addicted to the practice, they try to get everybody else to do the practice because it works for them, they'll kill because other people won't do the practice. Isn't that far out? Imagine the Arabs and the Israelis. I mean, they're, they're sisters and brothers in terms of the same God. And there they are beating the shit out of each other over their minds, over their mind trips. These are mind trips we're playing with. And we're all part of it. In our subtle way, we are all caught in these conspiracies of defining reality certain ways. And you realize it takes the individual. It's not going to be through the group process. It's going to be through each individual to extricate the awareness from the trap of these conceptual maps in order to draw back, in order to have the spaciousness to see the absurdity of the predicament of the traps of mind. I mean, I watch C-SPAN, and it's like watching, it's like watching Butthead and, and, and Beavis and Butthead, as far as I can see. I don't see a hell of a lot of difference. It's really bizarre, you know? I remember I was talking uh, by fax and visiting with uh, George Stephanopoulos, who was in the White House, and I said, George, in the White House, is there anybody that holds holds the vision or is quiet? Is there any silence? Is there any reflectiveness? Are there any elders? Is there any respect for the idea that the rational mind can't solve all the problems? And he said, no. <laughs> I said, is there even the appreciation that it would be useful? He said, no. Now that's not, uh, that's not saying these aren't good people by the way. I mean, George couldn't have, George sees that predicament. He couldn't have answered my question unless he saw the predicament. But you've got to see the amount of attachment to something that attracts a person into a certain social role, and then to get that person to fulfill that role without being trapped by it. See, in the old days, and they weren't so great either, but in the old days, the kings had jesters and they had fools and they had wise people around to say, hey, you're getting a little caught in your kingliness, don't you think? <laughs> Ain't nobody around now. It used to be at least Will Rogers, you know. Saturday Night Live doesn't do what Will Rogers did. It's a different level of the game. 
It's got to be a, a, a certain kind of compassionate satire. It's got to be humor that comes out of such love. It can't be humor that comes out of fear. And our, our comedies are full of humor that comes out of fear. Fear is what, is, what, is what excites the adrenaline. Just look at the daily news. Look what's on it. Look what's on it. Love doesn't sell. No matter how hard you try, it doesn't sell. People can't slow down enough to taste. Like you folks go out and you see the stars and it slows you down. And how many times do you even do that? How many times do you go in and turn on the lights and turn on the television or turn on, turn on something? You turn on, you tune in, and you drop out, but what you drop out of is the deeper truth into a linear storyline. Now, um, if you... If you see the nature of the of the um, if 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 this metaphysics that we're talking about about ego and, and uh, the different levels of self, ego and soul and awareness or God or whatever, if you see those and you begin to see what the nature of your curriculum as a soul is having taken birth on earth is to awaken out of the karmic illusions that you keep creating and you draw your awareness back through whatever practices you use to do that then you look around and at first you're satisfied to do a practice now and then but I'll tell you what happens is once the hook is planted it is inevitable and irrevocable you can try to go back to sleep, but you can't quite fully do it once you've started to awaken. And finally, what happens is it becomes your life's work. And something like somebody will come up to me and they'll say, I'm not doing well with my partner. We're thinking of divorcing. Because my partner isn't growing the way I'm growing and I want to go on with my, and I want a satsang. I want somebody that is growing with me. And I can see from the way they're saying it that at a certain stage of their spiritual practice, they could hear the answer that it doesn't matter because they would do work on themselves, working with somebody who wasn't awakening and they do a different kind of work working with somebody that was helping them awaken. In other words, you have a partner who every time you say, I'm doing spiritual practice, they say, oh, come on, cut the crap. Let's go to the movies. That's interesting work in terms of a fire of purification for your inner truth. And it's just as useful as you say, Oh, the spiritual world is so great. And they say, come on, don't talk like that. Really get in there. Okay. That's a different level. What I'm suggesting is that after a while, everything in your life becomes grist for the mill of awakening. 
and your priorities change. Instead of, am I happy in this relationship? It's, am I happy, am I awakening through this relationship? Am I awakening through my work? Am I awakening through this drive? Am I awakening through the way I'm taking care of my body? Is this, you begin to, the journey of awakening starts to dominate the terrain. And there is clearly an inner shift of priority. And then you start to use your life that way. Just to push just a little bit more. I know I'm giving you a lot, but I'm not giving you a lot. I'm unburdening myself of a lot. The quieter you become inside, the more you will pull back a little, extricate yourself a little bit from the reactive mode that we are in. We've all learned reactive modes with each other. Hello, how are you? I mean, we all have these incredible uh, stories to play out. The quieter we get in, inside or the more we get established in that witness or the soul. Or, and there's a subtle distinction between witness and soul, but I just really can't do it in a two-day. It's just too complex to keep playing this subtler and subtler level. Because um, the soul is really a transpersonal concept and the witness isn't really that. Um, but as you develop this quiet place inside from which you see the unfolding of your life story, you, you begin to understand what I was talking about yesterday, about how your ego identity is made up of your participation in the web, in a kind of horizontal web that involves your roles and all of your reference groups. They help define your identity. So that when you, like I used to have a, motorcycle at one point and I had a, um, a Mercedes. This was when I was being a young professor, 1958 I think. And I used to, when you rode the motorcycle, you put on a black jacket and you spit and you look tough, <laughs> see? And when you rode the Mercedes, you put on a houndstooth jacket and you put your pipe in your pocket and you had a, 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 ja a cap and you looked um, aloof. I mean, there were certain clear role definitions. And what I used to do is just for fun, I'd ride my motorcycle with my houndstooth jacket and my pipe and I'd go into the repair place and I'd say, there's a squeak in there, which you're supposed to say the left... <laughs> And I'd go to the Mercedes Club of America meetings in my boots and leather jacket. And they'd hate me because I wasn't playing the game properly. And I saw that when I chose, 
Like at one point at Harvard, the young Turks got together and they decided we shouldn't wear neckties in the faculty club. But there was a rule, and so there was going to be a confrontation. And they asked me to join, and I had to decide whether neckties in the faculty club was the particular issue that I wanted to go down fighting for. And as you're quiet, you listen in and you see that when you push against fulfilling your roles, there is a lot of energy involved. And when you get lost in them, there's a lot of energy involved. And there is an art form in learning how to be a participant in the systems of life and honor it. What does it mean to honor your identity as a member of an ecosystem? What does it mean to honor your identity as a member of a nation state? What does it mean to honor your identity? Like, I was born a Jew, and yet here I've been a Hindu Buddhist teacher and bringing Eastern ideas back to the West. What about my Judaism? Well, in the past five years, I've really made a study of it. Not that, and the, uh, the Jewish community says Ramdas is returning to the fold. That's their problem, not mine. Uh, first of all, I never left it. And I was, I mean, they, uh, just because I was doing Hindu practices didn't make me less a Jew. But it was really interesting to see what it meant to honor that part of my genetic identity. What did it mean when my father was ill for me to reorient my life, to live in the basement of that house in an apartment down there, to make sure he was well taken care of? Because I was part of a family. What does it mean for me to be active in the political community? Because I'm part of a political structure. And you realize it keeps expanding outward when you're part of a... Of a um, humanity and then you're part of living species and you're part of sentient beings and you're part of etc. And finally, the quieter you are, the more you feel yourself like tuning or feeling your way into the unique nature of your incarnation. And you find yourself and a harmonious way at peace with it rather than pushing against it or grabbing it. You are, I'm wearing this shirt, this save a shirt, but I'm not the shirt. But I'm wearing it and it's serving its function and I'm doing it appropriately. So when people say, what should I do with my life? The more interesting question is, how do I cultivate the quietness of my being in which what I should do with my life will become all too apparent? You'll hear exactly. And don't be afraid of making mistakes. The journey is a constant hearing as well as you can the inner voice, making a choice to take an action, take the action, the minute you make it, you feel it is disharmonious with some other plane of existence. And you go back inside again. The art form of continually emptying to hear freshly. Boy, imagine being in a relationship 
where everybody, where the two people are freshly meeting each other all the time. Imagine how freeing it would be for you. I mean, when you think of it, you and I are many, many planes of existence. Like if I had said to you when we were going to do this ritual with the beads, I, this is a ritual and I want you to enter into it as if you pull back and be your soul. And we're going through this form in our bodies, but we are soul meeting soul. And then we go through the ritual together from a different plane than if we don't say that and come up and we meet in our personalities. Now, sometimes I'm in one place, sometimes I'm another. When I meet somebody, they say, oh, I know Dick, or I know Richard, or I know Ramdas, and they peg me into a model, and their minds define for their efficiency. He's who I always thought he was. So if you came down to breakfast one day, and you turn out to be the divine mother, but somebody else thinks of you as somebody who didn't do the garbage last night, you begin to see how the conspiracy of mind defines reality, you know? You can use your membership into groups as a spiritual practice by exploring the power of your boundaries because the whole issue of awakening into, has also the quality of expanding to embrace more and more of the universe. And you can embrace it and keep the same control as a separate entity in relation to it. There has to be a dissolving of a certain boundary in order to be part of another kind of a thing. Like, my work requires me constantly to be emptying so that I become more of an instrument for some other kind of wisdom or presence or force. It's for true for each of us. And my job is to continually get out of the way. And it's interesting in my business to use personal stories impersonally. I mean, I use my personal life because it's anecdotal and it's easy to get to, but it has nothing to do with me particularly. I don't take it personally. And it's really interesting. The soul does not take the ego's trip personally. Like somebody comes up and says, you're really a disappointment to me. I figure that's their problem. I may take it and work with it and look and see in the total warp and woof of things, am I a disappointment? And I either say, you know, they got something there, I'll clean up my act, or I say, no, it's the projection of their mind. If I'm not mindful, I will react initially. What do you mean I'm, or, well, I think you are, well, whatever you do. To escape from reactivity is such an art form, such an art form. You and I are at this moment living in a, an increasingly um, 
Well, I don't know how to say this. You and I are living in shifts in the metastructures of the game we're living in that are so profound, like the information age. We haven't even begun to grow into it. We, our mythology is so much based on previous age, consciousness. We just haven't even understood yet. I mean, we're just starting with multinationals. I mean, we're just beginning the dance of understanding what it means when you have collective consciousness, when you have information moving at the rate it is. We're still getting overloaded trying to collect it when it's obviously you can't collect it You and I are in a situation of very dramatic change. And the interesting question is how you respond to change. Whether it's in your own body or whether it's in the social structures you're in. What happens when the family breaks down? What happens when the social, the government isn't functional? What happens? What happens when your IRA isn't as good as it was? Well, it doesn't work. Feel the chill run through you. You know. It's interesting to look at whether change is your friend or your enemy. Whether you can find a place in yourself from which you can see phenomena changing without being trapped in the fear that is generated by being identified with that which changes. That's what the issue is. You and I are not only here in terms of the work we're doing on ourselves... We are here in terms of the role we're playing within the systems of which we are part. And if you look at the way change affects people that are unconscious, change generates fear, fear generates contraction, contraction generates prejudice, bigotry, and ultimately violence. And you can watch the whole thing happen. And you can see it happen in society after society after society. And what is the antidote for that is the consciousness that does not respond to change with fear. That's as close into the beginning of that sequence as I can get. And I'll tell you, the deepest one is the fear of death. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.